brethren, I just turned 78 years old. And some of you know that, but some not. We don't celebrate our birthday, so there's no cake. But anyway, I just turned 78 years old, and uh, I'm in good health. Some people are thinking I'm about to die because I always let people know I could die, but that doesn't mean I'm about to die. And I don't think I will die for a while, but that's up to God, of course. But I'm very grateful that I'm still able to go to the wise. I did last night, the night before, the night before, the night before. And I do my walking and running, and then I go down and lift some weights and so on. But uh, I'm very grateful and thankful to God for that. I hope to take after my mother. My mother set me a wonderful example in many ways. And one of the ways was that she lived to be 94 years of age. So if I imitate her, I have 16 more years. But that's up to God and the circumstances. I hope we don't have more six, 16 more years in this society, of course. We don't know about that. But it looks like we will not. Well, brethren, I've had a lot of trials and tests during those 78 years. And many more are coming. You heard Mr. McNair tell about the news, even from our own brethren back in Wisconsin and Iowa, and we're having some of the worst floods in modern history. We're having other terrible uh, times. We're having terrible range fires out west. My son Jim called me this morning and said they're still having terrible heat there, and it's been up over 100 degrees many days, even in Los Angeles and out in the valleys. Some areas got up to 110 or 12 degrees. So they're going to have some terrible fires out there more than ever. And we're having, as you know, all over the country, floods, fires. And as you know, when you read about it, what these floods are bringing, it's going to bring over, over time, not immediately, but famine. There's a world food shortage coming. And virtually all the authorities recognize that. You read about that in Newsweek and Time magazine, our local paper, the Wall Street Journal, everywhere you turn, they're talking about a coming food shortage on a massive scale. And, of course, God predicts that. And one thing I want to tell you, by the way, kind of digressing here, it really bugs me that uh, a lot of them are thinking that Al Gore is the great prophet. They believe in Gore rather than in God. Now, God said these things two and three and four thousand years ago, and it is not all global warming. But some of it may be partly caused by global warming, but did God say how it was going to come? Could the great God who made our minds, who knew the kind of society that we were going to develop, foresee the fact that man would help bring these things on himself, even though he predicted it? Some of it could come by man-made means, but that doesn't say that God has nothing to do with it. Because God predicted these things, as you know, and I've read them to you many times. From Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, Jeremiah 10, Isaiah 11, and all the other scriptures, God predicted them thousands of years ago. So some of them might be got, uh, brought partly by global warming, but the great God is in charge, and he's the one who said these kinds of things would happen at the time of the end. So these trials are going to come upon us. Terrible earthquakes are going to happen. They're going to hit here, not just off in... Uh, offshore over in Southeast Asia that caused the tsunami or over in China has happened more recently. They're going to hit here. I think you all know that. And we're going to have disease epidemics and we're going to have terrible persecutions on the true people of God. We know that. After 58 years in God's work, because I came to college 58 and one half years ago, or really almost 59 years ago now, come September, what lessons can I share with you about how to go through these trials and tests that are coming? I think you all know they're coming. No question about it. God says so. They're beginning to happen right now in front of our eyes. They really are. And our brethren out here in the world, friends or whatever, relatives, neighbors, they don't understand. A lot of them realize something's wrong. There's a big unease all across America, as many reports say, but they don't know. But brethren, before it's all over, I think a lot of them are going to hear about our work and some of them are going to persecute us because we will be specific about things in ways they don't like. But nevertheless, we can reach out to them and help them as best we can through the broadcast. And if they ask us questions and so on, tell them. Tell some of your neighbors if they ask it and offer them the booklet, 14 Signs Announcing Christ's Return. Offer them ideas that can help them understand what's going on. Some of the things, these things might help them understand but you and I have to go through these trials, the terrible things that are happening. We heard about our brethren in Myanmar. 
they're not going to have a visit until November. How would you like to not have a visit in November, till November, and then have swirling uh, problems all around you, lack of food, roving gangs of, of, of thugs and things that they have in a lot of these parts of the world? Some of us think we have trials. We don't even begin to get ready to start to commence to have the trials that they have in other parts of the world. Most of you know that, brethren, when you think about it. But when our trials come, little tiny trials, we get our feelings hurt over some little thing or whatever. And we say, oh, we've got this terrible trial. Well, most of us don't start to commence to have the trials that these people have. Having their wives torn apart, having some of their children killed, their wives raped and mutilated and all the other things that are happening. We don't have that here yet in the United States. And we can be thankful for that. But nevertheless, we're going to have trials a lot worse than we have now. So we need to build faith and courage to go through those trials ahead. And I want to talk about that today. Turn to Romans chapter 8 with me, if you would, brethren. Romans chapter 8. And as most of you know, this is one of the most inspiring chapters in the Bible, and I won't read all of it today. I'd like to read all these chapters, but there's not time. Romans 8, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, brethren, the Apostle Paul writes, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And many of us in God's church are living according to the flesh. We, we, we come to church on Saturday rather than Sunday, but how many hours a week do we pray? How many hours a week do we study the Bible? Did you know that there are probably tens of thousands of good Protestant evangelicals and others that spend more time in Bible study or prayer than many of our brethren in the living church of God? I would bet every penny I have that there are. I read about them. I don't think they have any reason to lie about it. They're zealous. The Muslims are zealous for their God. They'll go out and give their lives. They'll kill for God. Yes, that part's wrong. But we are sometimes lukewarm. We're living surrounded by the TV generation. We have all these computers. We have all this stuff. And we're not on fire for God. And God knows that. Don't think God doesn't know that. He's terribly aware of that. Sometimes we let down and we don't pray and we don't study and we're not zealous for the work and we're not giving a full tithe and generous offerings as well as we should. We're not serving others and giving to them. Our lives are not filled with God's spirit and serving and helping and building and preparing for God's kingdom. And when we let down, we say, well, God understands. And I sometimes tell people or I don't always tell them. Sometimes I do in person and later I will tell my wife or friends or the fellow minister we're counseling together with. I'll say, yes. God does understand, you know, but he understands how weak we are. That doesn't mean he sympathizes or thinks it's a good thing. Yes, he understands how weak we are when we let down and we don't fully seek God and give our lives to God. You better believe he understands. Why should he always hear our prayers when we don't do our part, when we don't do the things we know we should be doing? So we have to understand that part. We're, we're debtors not to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, it says, the deeds of the body, you will live. You have to put to death. Very strong words. Put to death the deeds of the body. Put to death the lust of thinking of others beside your beautiful wife. Put to death the idea of drinking too much. Put to death the idea of cussing. And I want what I want. I want what I want when I want it. This attitude of self-will. Put that to death and say, God, my life is your life. It's not my life anymore. I've given it to you. And really mean that. All these things we need to put to death. If you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And that means, of course, eventually you will live forever. For as many as are led by, not just once upon a time had the Spirit. Most of you adults here, I assume, were baptized at one time or the other. I talk about some young people every now and then. They're very carnal and... And I know I've had children that are very carnal and so on and so forth. And I think, well, they grow up in the church and they're around it, and, but they don't get it. They don't get it. Mr. Armstrong's children grew up around the church and only one really got it. And that was Richard David Armstrong. Ted never apparently really got it. And certainly Beverly and Dorothy didn't get it. And I won't go through the story, but 
most of you have read enough or heard enough that they, they just didn't, they chended for a while, then dropped right away or even fought their father and every other kind of thing. They didn't get it. Many people did not get it. You look at the sons of Samuel, the sons of even David, the man after God's own heart. Many people are around the truth, but they don't get it. They don't get it until God knocks them down in some way. And we hope all of them will be knocked down someday. We hope all of them will fully give their lives to God. We hope that with all of our hearts, but many don't really get it. So we have to do that. As many as are led by, not that you once upon a time had God's Spirit, maybe you did at first at baptism, or maybe you didn't, but as many as are led by that Spirit, these are the sons of God. You have to be led by the Spirit, not just have it. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, indicating the Jewish practice of, of course, all kinds of sacrifices and washings and rituals, and they were under kind of bondage in that way, as Paul explains in Romans and Galatians elsewhere. But you have received the spirit of sonship. And as the New International Version reads it, words it and other versions, it can be translated adoption, the Greek word literally means to make a son, and it is correctly translated sonship, and some very top respected translators put that in their commentaries and put it in their translation. And correctly, when you understand the Bible and let the Bible interpret the Bible, that's what it is. You have received the spirit of sonship, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. I remember as a little boy, as I've told you once, down in Shoal Creek, south of Joplin, Missouri. My dad took me swimming there. And my little sisters and Mr. and Mrs. Ames are gone and out to a church and Mr. and Mrs. Amon are gone and Mr. Crockett is gone and his wife's back in Arkansas. So about half our church is gone, it seems, today. Half our ministry, at least. And others is vacation time. But they're out preaching, of course. Anyway, the... My dad warned me. He said, Roddy, don't get out in, the, out in that swift area that you, that, that'll, grab the, the, that'll grab you and pull you on down. There was a, a, a rocky place down there and then later a dam where I could have died. But sure enough, I was a very adventurous, feisty little guy and I got right out in the swift current and the, the, the current knocked my feet right out from under me and I literally did. I always remember that. There are certain key things I never forget. That's when I said, Daddy! My father was a student instructor in swimming in college. He was a very, very good swimmer, much better than I have ever been or ever will be. I don't plan to get any better now at age 78, by the way. <laughs> but he was a good swimmer. And he had sort of a pale skin with some freckles, but I always remember those light blue eyes. And, and that skin kind of turned pale as I turned him. I was only about 10 or 15 feet away. And boy, he started toward me like Tarzan. I'd seen the Tarzan movies. And boy, he came and he grabbed me and he pulled me in. Daddy, he's our father, and he will never leave us, and he will never forsake us. And we've got to really understand that, brethren. I don't care what we go through. In 58 year and a half years in God's work, I have seen that again. Yes, he has let some people die, but the ones he's let die who were faithful servants, I have every reason to believe, and in my heart know and know that I know that they will be with us in a very few years. And some of them may have a higher reward than you or me. And I mean that because they were so faithful, men like Carl McNair and John O'Gwen and others, very faithful ministers. I don't want to name them all lest I leave someone out, but we just know those are a little bit more outstanding. But they will be there, I'm sure. But he is our daddy, and he will never leave us nor forsake us. You see the early chapters of Acts, and hundreds of God's people undoubtedly were killed and persecuted, and James the apostle had his head chopped off. Did God forget the church? No! It caused people to get more zealous when Stephen was martyred right at the beginning. It says how the church grew. It stirred them to action and helped them to realize this is life or death stuff. And they began to be more zealous than ever because of some of those things. But he is our father. Abba, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You and I have a spirit essence connected with our human brain. And that gives us the power of creative imagination, the mind power, the power to know good versus evil and to choose the good and resist the evil. We have that kind of mind power because of the spirit essence 
from God that is joined with our human spirit. If children, if children as we are now, then heirs, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We're not some lesser heirs. We're going to inherit glory just like Christ did. If indeed we suffer with him. But think about that, brethren. Sometimes we read right over that. We say, if we suffer with him, what does that mean? That means a lot of us are going to have to suffer with him. I've had to suffer many, many times in my work and have things happen to me that I did not understand. But I learned later that it was for a good purpose. I better not reciting them. I've told some of you about them before. Don't want to overdo that. But I've gone through those things again and again. And I learned later it was for good in the end, even though it wasn't always fun at the time. Maybe it didn't seem that I deserved it sometimes. Uh, you know, God sends a message and the devil brings it, as Mr. Armstrong said, whatever, some bad guy does something, but God permits it. God permits it to teach us lessons. If we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Not to us from the top of the mountain, brethren. Think about it. The Greek wording here is in ice, in us, in us. We're going to have that kind of glory. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. We're going to be made very full sons of the divine family and even the creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now, it says down in verse 22. The trees are crying out because of the smog. They're crying out because of lack of rain. The whole creation is crying out because of this global warming. The whole creation is crying out because of all kinds of bad things that are happening and they're waiting till we can be members of God's family, figuratively speaking. Then we can heal the earth and God will heal the earth and help us to heal the earth and teach people how to do their part in preserving the earth. He says now in verse 28, and we know that all things, not just some things, think about it, brethren, think carefully on this verse. This is one of the most meaningful one of the most basic, fundamental, important verses in all the Bible. We know that all things work together for good. Now, I've heard many Protestants say this, or people that don't even know very much about God and certainly don't obey God. They'll say, all things work for good. No, it doesn't say that. Read the whole verse. All things work together for good to those who love God. How do you love God? 1 John 5, verse 3. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. You might want to put that in your margin here. Love God? Okay. How do you love God? You keep His commandments. And to those who are called according to His purpose. Jesus said, John 6, 44 and John 6, 65. No one can come to me unless he's called by the Father. It's not their fault in every case. You see what I mean? But they don't know God. They don't know God. It's not their fault. They don't understand yet. And so they're not called at this time and they have horrible things happen to them. Even the end of the situation with the, with the Auschwitz and, and Birkenau and the terrible concentration camps and Sachsenhausen, the one Dr. Manel and my wife and I just saw a few weeks ago over near Berlin. Even that will work for good in the end, I imagine, in the sense people were terribly humbled and the last memory may be hung up on this pole and poked and tortured until they screamed and died. But when they're resurrected, they may look back and, and learn things, how awful human nature is, how bad God, man's society is, and how much the world needs God. Even that can work together for good. But it's not talking specifically about that. It's talking about those who are called, you see, in this verse. Those that are called. And if you're called, your trials and tests all work for good. I've seen that in my life. I've seen that in the life of hundreds of others. And let me say something here, and I may say it again later in the sermon. I think I have it in my notes later. But brethren, in the 58 and a half years I've been around all the leading men of God in Ambassador College, Mr. Armstrong, Mrs. Armstrong, Ted Armstrong, Dick Armstrong, Herman Hay, you name it, all on down the line. I've seen over and over and over and over and over and in my own life that each one is blessed to the degree 
get it to the degree that he or she truly obeys God and walks with God. If you don't obey God in certain ways, you may not be blessed. If you don't walk with God in the way you treat your wife, if you don't walk with God in the way you train your children, if you don't walk with God in the way you seek God's kingdom by tithing generously and giving of God, knowing that you're here on this earth for a short time, the earth belongs to God and everything you have belongs to God. And really get that in your mind, that you're here, you're his servant. And to the degree that you have your heart in his work and can prove to yourself, you can prove it if you want to, where Christ is working, where the message is going out all over the world, and then get involved where Christ is working with all your heart, not half-heartedly, but to the degree you do these things and all the other things, to love God with all your heart, to love Jesus Christ with your being and be thankful now and forever for what he did for you, to love your neighbors yourself and all ten of the ten commandments and all the other things, to the degree you do those things, you will be blessed. And in the areas where you don't properly do those things, God may let you suffer some trials. I've seen some very good men of God who've gotten sick and they're sickly and have problems because they didn't take care of their body. I remember warning some of them many times. I warned my friend, Dr. Benjamin Ray, several times about being overweight, but I don't know if he died because of that, but perhaps partly because of that, but part was just because of a metal plate in his head. But he was overweight, and he's died of a stroke. And I've warned others since that I saw starting to look like Dr. Ray. I said, I love Dr. Ray, and I love you. Don't let this happen to you. Better not name these guys, but we've had them. We've, some of them are here now, not in this room necessarily, but in the ministry. I love them. I'm trying to hurt them. I want to keep them around. We need all of our ministers. We need all of our workers. A lot of you don't take care of your body. You don't exercise. Why don't you exercise? Well, frankly, you're just not in the habit and you don't think you need to, or you're too lazy, it takes self-discipline. How do you develop a habit? You start doing it and doing it and doing it. And if you'll do it for one solid month every single day, you'll find that if you get up and wash your face or shave and get awake and then pray before anything else stops you and make a habit of that, you develop a habit. And pretty soon, just like, you know, when you bend your elbow, your mouth flies open, you know, when you're eating, you get the habit. And pretty soon it's very natural to get up and pray. But if you're in the habit of not doing that, then you let the time go by and half the day is gone. And maybe the whole, oh, I didn't pray. It's four o'clock in the afternoon. Well, how come? Well, because you didn't develop the habit. That's why. Do you want to develop the habit? Are you willing to develop the habit? Same thing with Bible study. Some of these things are very important to learn. Is it worth eternal life? Is it worth it? And is it worth having a higher position? Maybe you can be in eternal life, you know, barely, a doorkeeper, by just having a basically right attitude and being around. But would you rather have a much higher position and be right in the center of Christ's will and help and serve and teach thousands or later millions of human beings the truth as the world expands and maybe God's kingdom expands even into other planets down through time, would you rather do that by going all out? As I said, some of the Muslims go all out for their God. Some athletes go all out. You read about the Olympic champions and how the swimmers will get up. And I've told you this before, but I've read it in these various magazines and so on. I believe it. You read what these guys have done. They get up at 4.30 or 5 and they take a whole bunch of laps and a pool and then they come home and they, they uh, eat breakfast and they go to work in their regular job. They're not all paid to do this. And then at the end of the day, they'll go right back to the gym, right back to the swimming pool, swim, 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 practice, practice, practice for another hour or two. Work, work, work. Why? They want to be the champion. They want to get up on that platform and they want to hear that noise. Da, 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 da. And chills go up and down their spine. And they are honored before a huge crowd and perhaps on TV around the world because they are the Olympic champion representing the United States of America. They want that with all their hearts. And so what are they willing to do? Get up at 4.30 in the morning and drive themselves toward that goal. And what is the goal? What do they get? A little medal or a little plaque or something and it perishes and then they perish. What we have will last forever and ever and ever as long as the stars will shine. Is it worth it? You better believe it's worth it. So we've got to have the right attitude. We've got to see the big picture in all these things. 
we've got to realize that God will take care of those who seek His will. And as I've said, to the degree that each one obeys God and serves Him, God will bless him to that degree. And in that particular area of his life where he's weak, he may have problems. If it's taking care of his health or taking care of his family or taking care of his job, he's not a good workman, they may have problems in that way or whatever it is, human relations, all kinds of things. And human relations involves God's spirit. Some people are nice, they're dedicated, but they're very militaristic and they put others down and always trying to catch people and they make people upset. Well, they've got to have love and outflowing concern and learn to get over that. I used to be much more strict than I am now, by the way. Some of you say, how could that be? Well, it was. <laughs> and I've learned to relax through the years. And I think it's done partly through God's Spirit. I know it is. Partly maybe through old age. As you get older, you're mellow. Partly through the trials and tests and sufferings that I've gone through. God has to work with us. He ain't through with me yet, as the saying goes. <laughs> and he ain't through with you yet either. We've got to learn. And we've got to let God teach us. But we can't just let God do it. Understand that, brethren. We can't just let God do it. We've got to zealously cry out to God. We've got to get down on our knees like Jesus did, who literally sweat blood, as it describes it back in Hebrews 7. He sweat blood and crying out to God because he wanted eternal life so much and because he wanted, of course, to be our Savior. And he was in the flesh, and he knew he could fail. Yes, he could fail. It was possible. He was tempted in all points like as we are. So anyway, let's understand that all things work together for good, not bad, for good, in spite of trials, in spite of tests, to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he predestined it, not by name, he didn't call you John Jones, 5'10", 190 pounds or whatever you are and everything else, but he knew he was going to call this kind of people at this time and he did it and planned it, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. And Christ is going to be the firstborn and you are going to be his full brother later on. So let's understand that. And boy, that's a wonderful thing to understand and to look forward to. Do all things work together for good? Yes. But I think back, just helping you understand some things so you can keep these things in contact. You say, boy, we have terrible troubles once in a while in the church or here and there. Yes, we do. We had some really bad guys. We're living in a litigious society. I can't mention all their names, frankly. Shouldn't anyway. But very bad guys. And one of them later got sent to the United States uh, Penitentiary for financial misdealings. But he was in cahoots with the other guy who was the smarter guy that even led the whole thing. And he should have been up too. But he was he slipped through their fingers and he didn't get sent up. But the other guy did sent to the U.S. Penitentiary. So a lot of them did very, very bad things, frankly. And I better not go through it. But they were very bad even before this thing happened. Stealing, second and third tithe, committing adultery, drinking heavily, and all this kind of thing. I remember being there in the area where it started about... Well, two, two years before it started, but I saw some of them drinking heavily and telling semi-dirty jokes. And I said, look, guys, I said, I know that I'm strict and I don't tell as many jokes. I literally did. I tried to be nice to them, but I said, this is too much. You can't do this, even among yourselves. Well, you know, it kind of went like that and this kind of thing. They thought I was an old-fashioned whatever. They were on the way out, and they did get out. And so God was doing what? He allowed a cleansing process. He allowed a cleansing process for his church at that time, and some very bad guys went out. I'm just saying that, and I know the facts, and know statistics, and I know situations, and people, and names, and so on, because of the jobs I've been in. But God allowed it, but it wasn't fun at the time, but it did work for good. Afterward, we found one thing, by the way, that was very encouraging to some of you local men here. Who held the church together most of all? back here on the East Coast. It was the local elders, some of the young hotshots from Pasadena, and they were hotshots. They got their leather jackets and their hogs. They bought these big Harley Davidsons. They were roaring around and acting carnal and cocky. But some of the local elders who'd had to been, you know, had to keep the Sabbath and that regular job and go through trials and tests out in the world, they knew where the truth was, and they stayed with the church, and they held the church together in many places even more than the young hotshots from Pasadena.
So we learn many lessons through these things. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, if you would. 1 Peter, brethren. 1 Peter chapter 4. And I'm going to begin reading here in uh, verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. When we have a trial, when we lose our job, when our wife is sick, or when our child dies, or whatever, hey, we think God's gone way off. No, not necessarily. If he's never gone, he may go off from us for a while to teach us lessons, but he's always there. And if we'll come back to him with all of our heart and all of our mind, then he'll begin to turn things around. Don't think it strange, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. So he's talking here primarily not just about normal trials, but about persecution. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. And as this work grows in power and we suddenly hit the front pages, we're going to be persecuted more than most of you imagine. As I've said before, brethren, we've had great peace now, and I'm grateful for that. I've had guns pointed at me several times and rocks thrown and this wild man and the swaps of Louisiana hit, trying to hit me with the, his chair, and I've told you some of those stories and all this kind of thing many times on the baptizing tours, but frankly, no one ever did shoot one of us. None of us were ever put in the hospital. We didn't even begin to go through the things that the Apostle Paul did and men like that. But near the end of our ministry, we're going to get above the radar screen, and they're not going to like it. And some of us may be thrown in jail, and some of you say, boy, Mr. Meredith got through strong. It's all his fault. I guess it was all Jesus' fault for getting too strong with the Pharisees, and they killed him. I guess it was, uh, you know, it was Stephen's fault for getting too strong, and they killed him. I guess it was James' fault for getting too strong, and they chopped his head off. Really? Tell me about it. No, God shows those were faithful men and women of God that went through those things. So we need to understand, if you're approached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed. They're going to curse God. They're going to curse the God that we worship. And they're going to use terrible words about us and our religion. But let none of you suffer as a murderer. No, we shouldn't do those things. Or a thief or evildoer or busybody in other people's matters. We're not to be a busybody. Butting in where we're not supposed to be. That does mean that we in the ministry should not guide our brethren's lives. And if they're causing division or doing something bad, check up as shepherds. But we're not to be busybodies. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian because you tried to serve God and are doing God's work, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come. Listen to this, brethren. The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And the time is now. Judgment is now upon the house of God. We've had some people leave us for very, very stupid reasons, frankly, for wrong reasons. We were doing the work, preaching the truth, everything else. They just wanted to be important. And the only way they could find to be important was to go out and start some little group. And what's happened to every last single one of them? And I could name four or five real quick. What's happened to them? They disappeared. And for the most of the brethren and most of the world, they're never heard from again. They're doing no work. They're accomplishing nothing. They just disappear. They are not preaching the gospel to the world, to all nations as witness. They're not warning Israel. They're doing nothing except dividing the church of God and hurting the progress of this work. That's what they're doing. Are they going to be rewarded for that? No. They're damaging their own reward through all, all eternity if, in fact, they even get in God's kingdom. And they'll have to repent of that divisive attitude even to be there, of course. I hope they will repent for their good. I don't hate any of them. But the time has come for judgment. God is testing us. Now, if it begins with us, what will the end be of those who do not obey the gospel of God? who do not take active part and are part of the very work of God and don't obey the gospel. Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, don't think you have a good mile-high, mile-wide margin of safety. You know, we don't. We're walking on thin ice. That doesn't mean we have to be afraid, but we want to realize that we all fall short 
I fall short every single day. How can I get out of this predicament? Well, we all know the way out, even if our heart is right and we honestly repent, then Christ forgives it and he makes up the difference through his mercy. I don't want God's exact perfect letter of the law, justice. I want God's mercy. And I think you do too. You know what I mean? Because we all fall short. But nevertheless, he wants to see that we're sincerely trying. We're sincerely growing in grace, the very character of Christ. And we're growing in knowledge. How much have you grown in the grace of Christ, Christ's character of dedication, of honesty, of purity, of self-sacrifice, of hard work, of giving and helping and serving in the last year? Think about it. How much have you grown in real biblical knowledge? We all need to think of those things. If the righteous is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Give your life to God as to a faithful creator. Have faith in God. He is there. He will take care of you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And I've experienced that and I've seen that happen, as I say, for a long, long time. And you're going to see that's the way it always works out. So we want to understand and we want to know that Christ will guide us and direct us. He'll cleanse his church. He will allow the bad guys to do certain things at times, but they will never wreck the church. They will never completely wreck the work. They cannot. It's the church of the living God. And they will never allow the bad guys to wreck you or take you out of God's kingdom. Nobody can. Nobody but you can keep you out of God's kingdom. Turn to John 6, if you would, at this point. The Gospel of John and we'll turn to uh, chapter 6 here. John 6, in beginning, I want to read just one verse and then get on down. In verse 63, he's been talking about eating and drinking of himself. And he said in verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words, get this, brethren, what are the words? The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. The very words I'm reading to you, it's like the law of gravity. They're living, moving things. These words are real. They're the description of the ultimate reality. They're a description of the mind of God, the way God is, the way God thinks. So you've got to really pay attention to that. But there are some of you who do not believe, Jesus said, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and uh, who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. God has to call. From that time, notice, you say, well, you know, Jesus were here. He wouldn't lose anybody. Oh, really? Here he lost a whole bunch of people. Jesus the Christ himself. From that time, many of Jesus' disciples went back and walked with him no more. He got so strong, and they didn't get it because they were carnal, and they defended them. And then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want us? Do you also want to go away? And Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You're the only one that really understands the whole purpose of human existence. We know that. Also, we've come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Peter made a lot of mistakes, but he came right out with these strong affirmative statements once in a while. And he was their human leader, although unconverted, of course, until after the day of Pentecost. And then suddenly you find a changed Peter, of course, after that. Before that, he finally denied Christ three times. But he still, nevertheless, had God's Spirit with him. And at times he'd come out with these very wonderful, strong ringing declarations of faith. You are the son of the living God. And so they knew they didn't fall away, but these other people did fall away. But even though people fall away, we need to know and know that we know that God is always there, brethren. We've got to really know that and believe that. Are you having sickness, some of your family? Are you having discouragement because the society is getting worse and worse and worse all around you and you see it, you wonder what's going on? Are you having financial problems? Some of you are because inflation keeps going on and it's going to get worse and worse and worse over time. It doesn't go straight up. Nothing goes straight up, but, you know, it's going to get worse. 
We're going to have terrible trials. We know that. So God is always there. I want to give you just three kind of big picture proofs that could give the whole sermon on this, but just as part of this sermon. Here are three personal proofs to me that God is there. First of all, number one, the big picture prophecies have always been fulfilled. And all the prophecies, but just mention some of the big picture prophecies. You know, if you've been around this work very much at all and read Mr. Armstrong's booklet and Mr. Gwynn's wonderful booklet later and the other things we've written, that the British and American peoples, the British descended and American peoples are the descendants of the house of Joseph. And we were predicted to be the greatest single peoples on the earth and have the richest parts of the earth and all the physical blessings. And those things have happened. And at the end of that, then God shows in so many other prophecies we've been telling you, we were to be turned, turned aside from God and forsake God and despise God's statutes. And he would begin to bring terrible terrors on us and drought and famine and disease and bring us down. And in verse, of course, Leviticus twenty six nineteen, he would begin to break the pride of our power. We see that happening all around us. The pride of our power is being broken. And there's never been a great an empire on the earth ever as the British Empire controlling so much of the whole earth. Way bigger than the Roman Empire ever was. For that empire is no more. And all the other things God said have happened. We read about the prophecies. And we've had articles on an ancient Babylon where God said it would go down and never be rebuilt. And that happened. Yet we've seen Egypt, God said they would come down and never be a great nation, but they would continue to exist. And just prophecy after prophecy like that about major cities and major nations that have happened. I've told you so many times about my experience as a young man, very young and not married, and I was just youthful. It hit me because it was just where I was, the way it was. I was with Mr. Armstrong and Mrs. Armstrong and Dick on that tour in Britain where I had these campaigns in 1954. And there he was up in Belfast, Northern Ireland, this great big old hall, over 700 people. We were astonished. We never had that many people at the Feast of Tabernacles yet. And there they were, 700 of them. And then later in Glasgow and Scotland and down in Manchester and down in London. And he said virtually every place, because I heard him say it again and again, he said, unless you British people turn to God and get back to the God of the Bible, he said, your empire will be no more. There won't be any more British empire. Now, a lot of these people were stirring. I heard them kind of stirring in their seats and muttering. And later, one and where it was, I think, Manchester, the, the, the janitor came up. And he was about my size, but a little older, a little more flabby. And I, of course, I was still young enough to be a little bit carnal. I came back to Mr. Armstrong. I like wasn't going to let him hurt Mr. Armstrong. He looked like he, he did. He challenged Mr. Armstrong like he was going to hit him or something. How can you talk this about our nation? He'd been listening in. He said it very strong. But brethren, it happened. He said, unless you turn to God, he says, God's going to take the great sea gates away from you. And he'll take away. And he mentioned specifically the Suez Canal. And he mentioned, as I remember, several others. This, the, uh, I don't know if he mentioned the Strait of Hormuz, but the Bab el-Mandeb and some of the, uh, the, the uh, out in uh, Southeast Asia. But anyway, and he mentioned some of these gates. And now they're all gone, as I told you, out of about 10 major gates. Every one of those is gone already, except Gibraltar and... Uh, uh, the other one is not gone. It's the Falkland Islands controlling the way around South America. They're the only ones left. And I predict to you that at least one of those will be gone in the next several years. You wait and see. Maybe both. But both of them are being agitated for by these other nations. Those are specific things. Then we have the healings. And I want to tell them all. I have 10 or 15 I could tell you about, but I'm just reviewing. I don't want to bore you. But remember the story of the lady on the baptizing tour back in 51 or 52 in Kansas. I always remember as my mother's home state came up and told us after we'd baptized her. She said, fellas, she said, you see these arms? She, her arms were bare because it was summertime. And she said, this arm, I forget which one, maybe the right arm, was about one-fourth, held us like a rope. I was born that way. And I got a cloth from Mr. Armstrong last winter, and the arm began to grow right out. And God healed that woman supernaturally and marvelously. Then there was another case like this. Mrs. Beam out in Salt Lake City had one breast removed 
completely for breast cancer and she was attending with her husband but not yet baptized. That humbled her so much and shook her that she then was baptized and in the church and then the, the cancer came back in the other breast and it began to spread and spread until finally she was hurting and, and the, the thing was dripping, I think, and she had all kinds of problems. They had a whole group of ladies taking care of her around the clock so her husband didn't have to lose his job. He had to support the family. Day and night they had these different ladies taking care of her. So they saw, they knew, they smelled the smell, the cancer smell and all the rest of it. And finally, she'd been anointed, but she got worse. And one night, she began to scream at the top of her lungs and scratch herself till blood came and beat the walls and called the minister. And he said, please come over and anoint me and ask God to either heal me or let me die. I can't stand it anymore. And the minister did come over and prayed for her, and she was healed, completely, totally healed, and went back to this this same uh, big hospital. It wasn't some chiropractor or something. Big hospital that specialized in cancer treatments and she was healed. And I won't go through all the details I've given you. The third part, the third key I'd like to give you to show that God is always there. God's way works. And I referred to that earlier, so I won't dwell on it. But in my years in the church, over 58 years, I've seen that everyone, to the degree they walk with God, it works. His way is right. His way is good. And they are always blessed in the end to the degree they walk with God. And we can be very thankful for that. Turn with me to Mark chapter 6, if you would. Mark chapter 6. And I'm going to begin reading here in uh, verse 35. Mark 6, beginning verse 35. We find here that Jesus was... Uh, dealing with these people who came over to hear him speak. He was moved with compassion, began to teach them. And when the day was now far spent, verse 35, Mark 6, his disciples came and said, This is the deserted place and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go and buy some food in these villages. They have nothing to eat. But he answered, You give them something to eat. And they said, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something? But he said, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And so they found out and said, five loaves and two fish. There were thousands of people. Five little loaves of bread and two fish. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. They were organized, not some mob. Interesting how God works and organizes things. And when he had taken the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven not wrong to bow our heads, especially inside. You might look at the fluorescent light or see a fly up there. That might be distracting. But if you're outside, frankly, if you're praying alone, I used to do that when I worked in the woods in Oregon and many other places. Look up. God's not down here. He's up there. So we can look up. I enjoy having a prayer place by the window so I can look out and look up. But Jesus looked up to heaven as he prayed and he blessed and broke the loaves and gave the loaves to them and the fish. And so they all ate and were filled up, and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments out of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000. But if you read Matthew's account of the same exact story, Matthew chapter 14, verse 21, why it says 5,000 men beside women and children. And they had big families, so they could have had fifteen to twenty-five or 30,000 people there. Of course, we don't know, but tens of thousands of people were probably there. Immediately, an awesome miracle. You think they know, wow, God is real. God is great. They should have thought that. But immediately, he sent them away, and he departed to a mountain to pray. He got his strength from crying out to God and walking with God. And when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea. Now, it wasn't in the ocean, of course. We know it was the Sea of Galilee, a great big lake. I've been on it a number of times. But it was a big lake, and they have terrible windstorms coming down this rift valley, as they call it there, very powerful storms. And he was alone. Jesus was all alone, and he was a young man, not afraid, and they didn't have too many wild animals. He was just out there by a big rock and praying to God and looking up at the sky, saying, Father in heaven, guide me, help me, use me. And then he saw them straining at the rowing, apparently out maybe ray of moonlight on them out in the lake. And there they were, not making much progress because the wind was against them. 
And he started walking in the fourth watch of the night. Check that up. That would be between 3 and 6 in the morning, maybe 4 a.m. What had he been doing all that time? He probably had prayed for hours. He's praying, talking to God. And he began walking on the sea. And when they saw him, they cried out and they were troubled. And he talked with them and said, don't be, don't be afraid, be of good cheer. And then he went with them up into the boat to them. He climbed up in their big fishing boat. And right when he got up there, the wind ceased. There had apparently been a strong wind stopping them from making much progress. And when he got in there and the wind suddenly stopped and they saw him and they realized this is real. We saw him out there in the water and now here he is right with us. Why then they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Some of the commentaries point out there are four different strong expressions. They were greatly amazed beyond measure and marveled. So they were really shaken by this. Why were they shaken? He had just got through feeding 20 or 30,000 people miraculously. Why were they surprised that he could walk on the sea? Let's think about this, brethren. I've just told you a bunch of things that have happened. And I've seen them happen, some of them. And I've been there and seen the results. But yet I lose faith sometimes. How come? Here's the answer, verse 52. For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. If they had really fully understood, here is a man who's teaching the truth, doing the work, healing the sick, casting out demons, and now all of a sudden he feeds 15 to 25 or 30,000 human beings with five little loaves of bread and two fish. This is God in the flesh. This is the power of the great creator of the heavens and the earth. He can do anything. It doesn't make any difference. They'd have understood that. But they didn't understand that because they were carnal. And so when the next thing came along, they go, oh, where's God? Where's God? And how could, how could this man be walking on the ocean out here on the, on the sea? You see what I mean? We forget so quickly. We forget so quickly what God has already done. And our faith is not as it should be. And yet God has delivered most of you in the past. And most of you know that you've heard of other people in the church that you know who did not just get over a cold like, you know, let's say drowning the cold in orange juice. I don't regard that as a supernatural healing. I'm glad you got over your cold, or you know. I'm talking about where you can absolutely be sure there was a supernatural intervention. And don't, I'm not making fun if you pray and you get over your cold faster. That's fine, but some of it's kind of iffy. You see what I mean. You might have gotten over it anyway, and I understand that. I'm talking about this kind of this woman whose, whose arm had never grown out. And her lady friend from the Baptist church saw it hanging there like a rope and suddenly it grows out. I'm talking about real dramatic healings showing the power of the great God of the Bible. That's what I'm talking about. And they didn't understand. They weren't able to transfer the understanding that God does this over here. So of course he can do that over there. It doesn't make any difference. We're dealing with the creator of the heavens and the earth. In him we live and move and have our being. He's our Father. He's our God. Jesus Christ is our elder brother. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Every hair of our head is numbered. We must love Him, worship Him, walk with Him, trust in Him, and put our faith and trust in God. Brethren, we need to do that with all of our hearts, and He will always deliver us then if we'll do that and keep His commandments and walk with Him and do our part. That's so important. So let's do understand these are such important things. Let's turn back now to Romans 10:17, and here's one that you know, but I want to review that. So what do we do? How can we grow in this faith? We need to do this. Romans 10:17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. As you hear the Word of God today, as you hear and read the Word of God in your own personal Bible studies, you will grow in faith. We've given you before, but not that he was converted, but the principle is true. Dwight L. Moody, this famous evangelist, you know, you read it in Haley's Pocket Bible Handbook. He said, I prayed for faith, and no faith came. He said, finally, I opened my Bible and began to study and study, and faith has been growing ever since. You read these things and read these things and read these things, and God's mind becomes part of your mind by that, you see, and you begin to think like God thinks if you're willing to let God teach you. And these things become real to you and you can have faith. 
ringing faith, powerful faith. And so, brethren, let's build that kind of faith. Study the Bible. Back in John 6, if you turn there at this point again, John chapter 6, and this time beginning in verse 51, he said here, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I'll give for the life of the world. Down in verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. You see, you have Christ in you, and I will raise him up. You're not immortal, but you have the presence of eternal life through the Holy Spirit. I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And some of them were asking questions. It sounded like he was asking for cannibalism. He explains, verse 57, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. And he said down in verse 63 again, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Brethren, if you feed on these words, if you learn to have not just carelessly reading a psalm once in a while or a proverb or something, I'm talking about studying your Bible, drinking in of it for 45 minutes to an hour and a half every day if you can, and most of you can. You have time to watch TV that much. Why couldn't you devote that time to Bible study? Feed on Christ. And as you do that and drink into these words, you will grow in faith more than you have ever grown before. And you then can give a ringing declaration of faith. Faith can permeate your mind because you will then have more than you've ever had the mind of God, which is in this book, and you will think like God and then you will know. You will know and you will understand and you will believe in a way that you have never believed before. So I challenge you to do that. If you have God's mind, you will have faith and courage more than you have ever, ever had. And that's so important to understand. Turn back to Psalm 33. Psalm chapter 33, brethren. And here is a wonderful psalm. I'd like to read it all and have it all marked, but we don't have time. So let's just begin in verse 10. Psalm 33, verse 10. The eternal brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. Is our State Department going to bring peace to the Middle East? Of course not. Is the United Nations going to bring peace? Of course not. God brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of the ever-living one lasts forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the ever-living one and the people to whom he has chosen as his inheritance. The eternal looks down from heaven. Our Father in heaven is looking down on us right now, right this minute. You know that. He's our Father we're probably the second largest group in the living church of God, outnumbered only by those bad guys back in Kansas City. I'm always threatening Mr. Millich. I'm just kidding that we'll pass them up someday. <laughs> and he said he'll be glad if we do. Of course, he's glad to see us grow at headquarters. But anyway, he looks down. He sees all of us here. He looks down from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from the place of his habitation. He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually he considers all their works he sees what we do do we really do what he tells us to do but he fashions our hearts he's teaching us lessons he's working with you he's working with me he wants each one of us to be in the very center of his will he wants us to be fully like jesus christ because then he can give us the kind of glory and power and immortality that christ has and we will be full members of the kingdom of God. Well, you know, first, as we've said, you have the mineral kingdom. Then you have the plant kingdom of the grass and trees and flowers. You have the animal kingdom. You have the human kingdom. You have above that the spirit kingdom of the angels and the cherubim and seraphim. And above all the kingdoms is the kingdom of God, the level of existence of God. And we will be transported right through the angel kingdom. We'll skip one kingdom at this time because it's God's will. And we can be born into that kingdom and bear God's name forever as full members of his family and interact with him and with Jesus if we can develop the reality of the knowledge of God and walk and live by faith 
absolute faith and trust in God. That's what you have to do through the trials in your life and the trials just ahead. So I hope with all my heart we can all do that a lot more. So let's do do that, brethren, that we can be in God's kingdom and bear his name forever.